0: Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. The last time I preached in the morning, we began a section of this letter in which Paul is using an extended metaphor in order to make a theological and practical point. And the metaphor is a well-known one. It's the image of the church of God, as the body of Christ, the body of our Lord Jesus. He is the head, and all believers united to Him by faith are members, are parts of His body. And this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 helps us to remember, to both remember the image, the church of the body of Christ, but it also does more. Paul reminds us how the body of Christ ought to function by pointing back to how our physical bodies function. And my aim today is to press the metaphor a little bit more in order for us to draw out some helpful lessons about how the body of Christ ought to function. Before we get to that, let's begin by reading our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12, going through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of our Lord. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Verse 27 Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But you earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. As our Lord Lord Jesus has said, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would bless the reading in the preaching of your word, that you would build up your body, that you would knit us together in love for you and love for one another. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The bulk of this sermon will circle around verse 27. Verse 27 of this passage, though I'll be moving up and down the passage as we travel along. Look at verse 27 again. You are the body of Christ and individually members of of it. And the first you there is plural, which if you'll grant a little artistic freedom, we could render this way. Y'all are the body of Christ and individually members of it. In this verse, Paul addresses the individual and the collective, the part and the whole. And we need to understand each properly if we're to get the other correct. So let's start with the end of the verse first. You are individually members of of it, of the body of Christ. Paul is reminding them of something very elementary, something that sounds so fundamental. If you spent any time in the church, duh, Paul, we know that already. But the problem in Corinth is not that they didn't know it. The problem is that they weren't acting in accordance with it. They were forgetting the fundamentals, and it was producing big problems. And if we're not intentional, the same could be true of us here at Morning View. We can forget who we are, and we, we can forget who our fellow church members are. So the first question is, well, who are we then? Well, the Bible teaches us that we are all sons of Adam. We're born in the image of God. We're meant to commune with God. We're meant to fellowship with God, just like Adam did in the garden. Genesis says that Adam walked in unbroken communion With God in the cool of the day. Communion with no sin, no deception, no fear of being found out, no barriers to fellowship, no pretensions, no walls. Just pure, delighted, contented communion. That's what we were made for. But Adam would not let it stay that way. He instead chose to violate that fellowship. He ignored the truth of God. He exchanged the truth for a lie. And he broke God's covenant with him. And in doing so, he brought sin into the world. Putting up a barrier between himself and a holy God. He and all of his offspring, that's me, it's you, born, separated from God. We're estranged. We're alienated. We are unable to commune with our Creator. We're fallen. We're tainted by sin and every aspect of our being. We are unfit by birth to be in the presence of a holy God. Therefore, Adam had to be cut off. He was kicked out of the garden. The garden, the symbol of perfect communion with God, he was banished and an angel with a flaming sword posted so that he couldn't get back in. There was no hope, no way of reconciling, no way of restoring that lost communion, even though man tried. Man tried thousands of ways, but fallen man couldn't work his way back up to God. You read through the Bible, you see that at the Tower of Babel, they tried to build their way up to heaven, but it didn't work. Man tries to purify himself through good deeds and noble acts, but no man is able. People tried to follow the law of Moses, but in their own strength, they only became Pharisees. Man was unable, just like you and I. We are not able to build our way up to this communion, to this satisfaction that we once had, that we were made to have. Many of you know this. There was a point in your life where you tried to clean yourself up, but you couldn't assuage your defiled conscience. You tried to be righteous enough, but you couldn't do it. You tried to bring satisfaction and significance to your lives in all kinds of ways. But God had to demonstrate to you that nothing in this world could make you feel satisfied. Nothing in this world could bring you communion. Nothing you in in this world could give you the significance that you desired. It's because it's impossible. We were made for fellowship with God, and outside of that fellowship, we are incomplete. Nothing on this earth can fill that void. And so there's a tension that we're left with. We are designed to be one with God, but we are unable to do it. It's impossible. Unable to do the thing for which we were created. To have the thing for which we so long. We can't do it. But God. God decided to do for us that which was humanly impossible. God decided to save when we were unable to save ourselves. We were unable to build our way up to heaven and so God brought heaven down to us. We were unable to clean ourselves up. We were unable to purify ourselves, and so God brought purity itself down to us. He sent His only Son, Jesus, the eternal Word of the Father Himself, to take on human nature and to redeem that which we could never save. He came down and became one of us, yet without sin, in order to take us up where we could never go. He walked the life of righteousness that we could never and would never have done on our own. He never succumbed to the lies of Satan. He perfectly protected the communion with God that Adam failed to protect. Jesus never betrayed that fellowship which was so dear. And yet, although he himself was sinless, he was murdered as a sinner. He, the innocent one, treated as guilty. The holy one treated as the corrupt one. The righteous became unrighteous, the one with perfect communion with God, abandoned and alone on the cross. He was estranged so that his body might be redeemed. He was he was neglected, treated as an orphan, as it were, so that we might be adopted. He was treated as vile so that we could be brought back from beyond the veil. He was treated as worthless so that we could be seen to be the apple of God's eye. That's what it means to be individually a member of the body of Christ. It means to be united to Christ by faith in Him, trusting in the message and the mission of the Son. Knowing and believing and affirming that you are a sinner, worthy of being cut off, but because of Christ and His sacrifice in your place, you have fellowship with God again. That's the good news. The formerly unholy have been made to commune with the holy. The imperfect has been embraced by the impeccable. That is good news It's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Do you individually, as members of the body of Christ, do you know that good news? Do you believe it? And if you believe it, And hear it again. Embrace it again. Let the majesty of it warm your soul anew. You were a terrible sinner. You were a liar. An adulterer. You were a murderer. You were wicked in your thoughts and your ambitions and your motives, but God has ransomed you so that you could commune with Him. He's made you clean through the sacrifice of His Holy Son. You were without a family, isolated from true fellowship, cut off from God. And now you've been brought into a spiritual family with brothers and sisters and a heavenly Father with whom you will not lose communion again. That's good news. Don't be like the Corinthians who are tempted to forget that they have been individually made to be a part of the body of Christ. And if you're not trusting in Christ, If you haven't yet found communion with God, then you need to know that your fate is still in Adam. You have been separated from God because of your sin, and there's nothing you can do to make up for it. You can't study your way into communion with God. You can't think about Him enough. You can't read enough books. You can't pray your way up to the heavenly heights. You can't do it through good deeds, through charity and generosity, through kind words, through knowledge, or whatever kind of devotion. None of it is enough to bring you true fellowship and communion with God. Christ must do it. If Christ is not your mediator, if He's not your high priest, you have no hope. You are in Adam But if you come to Christ, if you hear of His work and His heart for sinners and believe what God has said about Him in in His Word, then you too can be counted as righteous. You can be made a part of the body of Christ. You too can share in the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit. You can walk with God like Adam did. But unlike Adam in the garden, you won't lose this fellowship. There's no other religion that can offer that. There's no other path to sanctification or holiness. There's no other way to get to significance, which we all long for. Every other path leads you to dead ends. Only the path of Christ leads to lasting communion and contentment. Only Christ is the way to get the thing for which you were created. Fellowship with God. Communion with the holy. Won't you believe In that Christ. He's done it. He's done everything you need. To have fellowship with God. And to have lasting significance. And contentment. And joy. Become a member of Him. Believe in Him. Have the connection you have always craved. Don't don't fall for worthless excuses. Don't, Don't wait. We're not promised another day. Come to Him this day. And you too can be made personally an individual member of the body of Christ. But we're given even more than that. Now that we've, made, we've laid a gospel foundation in order to make clear what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. In order to make clear that we first must be united to the head to be made a part of the body, we need to address some of the dangers that Paul is addressing in this passage. And to do that, we need to go back to the controlling metaphor, right? The body of Christ. We might say that the last sermon was a study of the anatomy of the body of Christ. The components of it. The hands, the feet, the head. We discussed the fact of the different parts and the necessity of different parts. Today, I'd like to spend the remainder of our time thinking less about the anatomy and more about the physiology of the body of Christ the physiology of how the body functions, how the various systems cooperate and relate, how they move, how the collective whole might operate according to its proper design. Back to verse 27 again. You are the body of Christ. Y'all are the body of Christ. You, plural, collective. This is the, the collective element. We weren't merely saved as individuals, plucked out of the world and brought into the kingdom so that we could live otherwise unaffected, isolated lives. To use a different metaphor, we were grafted into the vine, and there are other branches on the vine. We're made to be part of a family, and families are full of different kinds of people, as we all know, whether we like it or not. Families are diverse, And so as we get into the physiology, I think it's physiology, maybe kinesiology, one of our physicians can clarify, the internal dynamics, we need to see several dangers that we must be on guard against in the body. In the life of the body, we need to be aware of these dangers. A first danger to the health and vitality of the body is radical individualism, radical individualism. Individualism. There is no denying that our current culture is radically individualistic. I don't think I need to prove that point. And if that be true, we would be fools to think that that temptation is not impacting the body of Christ. For example, we see people today change churches as quickly as they change their banks. Or their supermarket. Their favorite store. I don't like the way that they changed this policy or this service, so I'll just use the one across the street. This bank doesn't have the accounts and the investments that I wanted, so I'm heading out. People do this in churches all the time. I don't like this change in Sunday school. I don't like this ministry. I don't like this decision. I'm out. Not one single thought to being part of and connected to a larger body. Not one conversation with fellow members or with leadership. Totally self-concerned. If there were a church that had an ATM option where they could pull up, not get out of their car, punch some buttons, get what they need, and leave without speaking to a human being, they'd be interested Totally self-concerned with convenience, with preference. And we are called to be better than that. We are called to be a part of the body of Christ. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying there aren't legitimate reasons to leave a church. That would be a good sermon one day. Maybe I'll do that. But if in leaving your church your motives are entirely self-interested, then you need to check your heart. Radical individualism is natural for sinners, for fallen flesh. It's innate to who we are. We like being selfish and making everything about me. And so don't let your flesh deceive you to think that church membership is all about you. It's not about you. Whose body is it? It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus, His body, and it's about your brothers and sisters, too. Radical individualism is really just a sociological, descriptive term for a disposition of pride, of selfishness. A selfish person is only concerned with themselves and their preferences. They're totally unconcerned with the well-being of those around them. And if you see that in you, you need to repent. You need to remember the gospel, the whole first point. Christ was not selfish towards you. Christ gave up His preferences in order to serve you. Praise God that Christ was not totally self-concerned. We must beware the allure of radical individualism. Second, a second and much more dangerous threat to a healthy body, we might call a subtle individualism, a subtle individualism. It's it's similar to the first kind, but it's a lot harder to detect. This kind of subtle individualism is upstream of radical individualism. That is, if the subtle goes unchecked, it will inevitably lead to the radical. This person, the person who has succumbed to subtle individualism, is still present. He still comes to church. Maybe he participates in some other ministry area. He might even lead one of them. But, and this is the key, his heart is not in it. His body is present, but he's spiritually, emotionally, mentally elsewhere. He doesn't truly sing with joy to God, even if he may mumble the words. He may throw something in the offering plate, but there's no sense of joy and sacrificial love. He's simply going through the motions, either out of a vague sense of duty rather than devotion, or maybe out of simple routine rather than reverence. It's the way we've always done it. It's the way Mom and Daddy taught me to do it. we're going to church on Sunday, and that's it. But their heart is not in it. He's begun to coast. He's simply here. He's very near to the vine, and he produces what looks like genuine fruit. But it's not true fruitfulness. To go back to our body imagery, it's like when your foot falls asleep because you've sat on it too long. It's still connected to the body, but it's no good for walking at the moment. If you try to move your foot and wake it up, it stings, there's pain. But if you fail to do something with it and you just let it remain asleep, damage could be done. The situation is unsustainable and if unresolved will produce harm to the foot and the body. We're called to something more. we need one another in the body, which means several things. It means to be an active part of the body of Christ, we have to be present. You must be with the body to be a part of the body. We have people on our rolls, either because of COVID or some sort of excuse, have gotten out of the habit of gathering with the body. They're And they're in danger of becoming like a foot that's fallen asleep. I hope you will think about the imagery that Paul is using here and ask yourself, think about yourself, am I behaving as part of the body of Christ as Paul has intended me to do? Are we acting like we're connected to the body of Christ? Because if we're never here or we're rarely here, then we have to be warned we're putting ourselves in undue danger and we're robbing the body of Christ of the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given you. Or perhaps even more subtle, if you're here, if you're faithful to be physically present but your heart is not, you just find yourself going through the motion simply driven by routine or duty, then you need to be warned as well. Take heed. You may look pious on the outside, but God sees the heart. Listen to Jesus' words to the church in Sardis from Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says to that church, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have heard and received. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Jesus' words to the sluggish and the sleepy is repent. Repent. Call out to him. Jesus says, I see your sin. I see your coldness of heart. Turn from it. But don't just stop there because Jesus ends his letter with a promise. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Turn away from your sin, Jesus says. Why? Because God has saved you and he will keep you to the end. If you are drifting, you need to hear that message and return to the gospel. Remember what Christ has done. If you are asleep, let Jesus' words shake you awake again. If you're coasting, remember the severity of your condition outside of Christ. Remember the terrible fate from which you have been spared. Remember the heart of your Savior, the one who has redeemed you. Linger upon those things. And let Him warm your heart again. And once warmed by that gospel, resolve to be a faithful member of the body of Christ. Faithful inside and faithful inside outside don't let us succumb to individualism either of the radical or the subtle kind a third and final danger to a healthy body is what I'll call a me complex a me complex this complex views the life of the body through one lens The lens of me. I am the filter through which I view the life of the body. It looks different ways with different people, but the lens is the same. Paul mentions it earlier into the passage, but I want to press a little more into the dynamics of it. One example of a me complex is the sense of inferiority that some feel. We saw this in verse 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that doesn't make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, I'm not an eye, I don't belong. Right? One part of the body can't say that it's not needed simply because it wasn't created like the other part. But sometimes we can do this. We, we turn our gaze back in on ourselves and we have some sort of inferiority complex about it. Say, well, I'm I'm not really anything special. I'm not I'm not gifted like they are. I don't have any big time flashy gifts. I don't think anybody would really miss me if I'm gone. I don't really matter to the life of the body. And it sound it can sound kind of holy to talk like that. oh, I don't I don't have any special fancy gifts. I'm not really anything special. Right? But that's it's actually pride. That's false humility. It's a sin. You see how me-centered it is. I'll never be like them. I don't really matter. Nobody would miss me if I never came back. You see how everything's pointed in on me. Me is the lens through which they view the world. And it's all sinful pride. And Satan has twisted the mind of that poor person to think that they are the lens through which they view the life of the body. But Paul addresses a second expression of the me complex as well. You we can look at verse 21. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Nor can the head to the feet say, I don't need you. If the first problem was an inferiority complex. The second problem is a superiority complex. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. You can't look down at other parts of your body and say, you're irrelevant. Or you're redundant. You're, you're ugly. You're unsightly. You're annoying. I don't like you. You're stinky. All the parts of the body need the parts of the body. But we sometimes act as if we have the ability, the authority to judge the different parts of the body. We may have different motives for doing so, but we're all tempted to do it. Maybe there's this other person in the body And you're actually envious of their gifts. You see them as the hand. You see that you're the foot. Man, I really wish I was a hand like them, out in front, doing all the cool stuff, so useful and productive. But you're a foot. So you let bitterness take root in your heart, disdain. Maybe it bubbles up to gossip or slander. Maybe you see somebody else given a position of honor. They have prominence. You don't. So you say, well, I'm really just insignificant. I don't matter. Rather than embracing the station that God has given to you, perhaps you clamor, you claw for prominence, you badmouth their performance, or you minimize the significance of their achievements in order to make yours seem that much more impressive. Maybe you've become impatient with another part of the body. Somebody else is gifted in a way different than you. And you think that your kind of gifting is a way more important than their kind of gifting, so you just kind of... The body would be so much better if we didn't have so much of them. There's a hundred different ways that we can let a me-centered complex dominate our vision, and it undermines the health of our soul and the health of the body of Christ. And wherever it is, it's rooted in pride. Pride forgets that God has distributed the gifts according to His infinite wisdom. Look at verse 28. That's how it starts. As God has appointed. God has appointed. There's no reason to boast in our gifts because God has given them. What have you done to get those gifts? Which of us worked hard and selected the gifts that we have? But there's also no reason to lament. God gave you your gifts. You may feel like I'm just a foot. God made you a foot. God made you a hand. God made you an ear or an eye. There's no reason for envy or false humility or any other species of pride. God has allotted the gifts. God has appointed the stations. God has knitted together the body of Christ with no less wisdom or care than He's knitted knitted together your human body. No part is needless. No part is inferior. No part is unimportant or redundant no part is superfluous no part is the same that's where he goes in the final verses a bunch of rhetorical questions all of which with an implied answer of no no not all are apostles not all are prophets not all are teachers or helpers or leaders and that's for the good of the body instead we're called to a higher way a better way paul says a way expressed through the most important thing of all, and that is love. That's where we go in the next chapter. That's where we'll spend the coming weeks. But for now, I want to conclude this section by reflecting on the greatest act of love the universe has ever seen. The sacrifice of Christ. Christ felt the punishment in His body that His body deserved, that we deserved. Think about the contrast in imagery between what's in our text this morning and what is presented at the Lord's Supper. Christ's physical body was broken so that His spiritual body might be put back together. Christ's body was separated, torn apart, body and blood separated, so that a separated people might be reconciled. His body was put to death so that we might be brought back from it. He was abandoned and alone in the grave so that we might never be alone and have communion with God and with each other. What we have in the supper is a picture of the undoing of the curse and the fall. Through his brokenness, through him being cursed, communion is repaired. Through his death, life is restored and we're brought back into fellowship, the thing for which we were created. If you're trusting in Christ, if you are following after him in the truth of his word, if you're devoted to fellowship among the body as the saints were in Acts 2, true genuine fellowship not mere physical presence then we invite you to join us at the table if you have not yet trusted in christ and obeyed him obeyed him in baptism then let the plates pass we will pass and distribute the elements and then we'll all take the meal together let's pray father we thank you for the truth of god that is found in this text where we have been made individually members of the body of Christ and members of one another. We pray that this meal would be set apart and used to build up and nourish and edify your body. Help us to see in the picture the benefits that we have in Christ. The cost that was paid in our place. The terrible judgment that has been averted because of his sacrifice, and help it to remember help us to remember the great meal of fellowship that awaits us in the final times. Bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. Table servants, please come.